Right, well, good evening, everybody. Um, my name's Robin Lustig. I'm going to be chairing tonight's event. And I have to say, my first reaction is, gosh, what a lot of people. Um, it's very nice to see you all. So thank you very much for coming. Um, as you know, the theme of our discussion this evening is, can Europe lead in a post-Western world? And uh, the idea is that I'm going to ask each of our three panellists to say a few words first. Then, obviously, we will open things up and give you an opportunity to contribute to the discussion. Uh, this event is part of a wider project called Europe at the Crossroads, which aims to look at the state of the whole debate about the EU and the UK's place in it, and indeed the future of Europe. Uh, the project's run in partnership with the LSE European Institute and the European Commission Representative's Office here in the UK. And if you are a devotee of Twitter, you will want to know that it has its very own hashtag, which is hashtag EU Crossroads. At which point I ask you to put your mobiles onto silent, please, but don't turn them off because otherwise you won't be able to tweet. Um, we are recording tonight's event. The hope is that, provided there are no technical problems, there will be a podcast available online in due course. Let me then introduce tonight's speakers. On my right, Dr. Jamini Bhagwati is the Indian High Commissioner here in the UK. Before his appointment here, he was his country's ambassador to Belgium, Luxembourg and the European Union. He is a long-serving member of the Indian Diplomatic Service. He has also spent time working at the World Bank. Mary Calder is Professor of Global Governance and Director of the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit here at the LSE. She is the author of several books. She has just co-edited with Professor Joseph Stiglitz, The Quest for Security, Protection Without Protectionism, and The Challenge for Global Governance. She is also a founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And Mark Leonard is the Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, previously he was Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. He also founded and headed the Foreign Policy Centre. He is the author of two best-selling books, including Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century, which was published in 2005 and translated into 19 languages. Now, 2005 was eight years ago. And it's a very long time in global <laughs> affairs. Um, 2005 was before the banking crash, before the euro crisis, before the change of leadership at the top of the Chinese Communist Party. And I would suggest that Europe today looks a lot less like a potential global power than perhaps it did back in 2005. Take, for example, the European Strategy Review, which was published in 2003, it said Europe has never been so prosperous. Well, that may have been true in 2003. I don't think it's true a decade later. And, of course, while Europe has been struggling, other nations have been prospering. India, China, obviously, but also many others. So-called emerging nations, among them Mexico, Indonesia, and many others. So the question then really, what is Europe's role to be? The EU, made up of 27 nation-states, some of them former imperial powers with a glorious history behind them, a very uncertain future ahead of them. Can Europe still aspire to lead? Should it aspire to lead? Lead whom? Lead what? Or is the whole, nation of lead, no, whole notion of leadership misplaced? 
in a world where perhaps no one now can lead. That's what is sometimes called a G0 world. Another possibility, of course, often discussed a G2 world, maybe something like what we saw just over the last weekend when Barack Obama and Xi Jinping put their heads together in Palm Springs. And if the People's Daily is an accurate reflection of Mr. Xi's thinking, then he doesn't see much need to bother about Europe. Just last week, here's what the People's Daily said about Europe. It wrote bitterly of the condescending attitude of some Europeans who, it said, have failed to recognise the change of times and the shifts of power. Not much doubt, then, I don't think about how Beijing would answer the question that we are discussing tonight. So, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to tell us how they will answer the question. I am giving them between eight and ten minutes each. After eight minutes, I will tap my glass twice, just like so. After ten minutes, I will tap three times, and the floor will open beneath them. (laughs) We will aim to finish at around 7.45, which I hope will give you plenty of time to make your contribution. Hi, Commissioner, you're first. Thank you. Mr. Robin Lustig, my fellow panelists, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm going to rattle off a few uh, facts, uh, which are probably all known to you, but the fact that I'm rattling them off gives you an indication of what I give primacy to. Europe is still the largest economic bloc in the world, GDP about Euro 13 trillion, Eurozone about 9.5 trillion, 505 million people. It's the largest trade bloc. We are watching uh, quite curiously how this transatlantic trade and investment partnership agreement between the U.S. and the EU may happen, if it happens, because it will be a game changer, not just economically, but also politically. The EU is negotiating a number of FTAs, including with India, Canada, GCC, Japan, Thailand. Although uh, the various countries within the EU are at very disparate levels, it is still, as a bloc comparable to the US, as a repository of advanced science and technology, which helps its industry to maintain a comparative advantage. (coughs) EU is continuing to expand despite the skepticism, and I believe Croatia is to join as the 28th state on the 1st of July of this year. EU follows, from our perception, from our point of view, coherent policies in the areas of climate change, non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and counterterrorism. We are very impressed with EU's anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia and other troubled parts of the world. It is still one of the largest providers of development assistance around the world. Now we come to the questions. Uh, The first is the concept of shared sovereignty. From the Indian perspective, it is somewhat confusing and we don't quite fully understand it as a relatively new country, although an old civilization, even an ancient civilization, That's a concept which we find even within the EU sometimes different states have differing perceptions about what it means for them. Now let's come to some of the issues that was mentioned by the moderator at the beginning. Let's begin with banking sector difficulties. 
to some extent, the sovereigns taking on the banking sector debt, in my perception, has been part of the problem, which has uh, further exacerbated and highlighted the multi-speed Europe. The most important element, if you're going to look at all the economic numbers, for me, are the current account deficits because they give an indication of the competitive abilities of these economies. A few issues which are now on the table, banking union, common regulator for the banks, whether it will be ECB, the German constitutional court and the legal infirmities and uncertainties which surround issues of the EFSF that, that was the European Financial Stability Facility, it still continues because it has issued bonds, and the European Stability Mechanism, ESM. What surprises me is that if I remember right, the last time I looked at Eurostat, about Euro 14 trillion is what EU citizens, pardon me, Eurozone citizens have in financial assets. That means they are liquid assets. Why is it so difficult for Eurozone governments to raise long-term money when Eurozone citizens have as much as 14 trillion? That means that there is an issue of creditworthiness for some Eurozone economies. Of course, that leads us to some of the underlying issues, labor laws, inelastic social security, medical and unemployment benefits, inelastic in an economic sense, irrespective of if push comes to shove, you still have to make good as a government within the Eurozone and for that matter, EU. So let's uh, get on with growth versus austerity. Whether we agree with the IMF or whether we agree with Paul Krugman or someone else, this is an issue which seems to be unresolved from an external perspective, external to the EU that is. Where is EU on this? Because there are differing voices on this. And there are differing voices on who bears how much of the pain. The taxpayers, those unemployed, secured, and this is very important, unsecured bondholders. Because you might recall the private sector initiative which was embarked upon with regard to Greece, where bondholders had to only pay up 50% of the value of their bonds when the market value of their bonds was only 5%. I'll come to India-EU. We were among the first amongst the Asian countries to forge a partnership with the EU in the early 60s. Of course, at that time, it was the European Economic Community. We have been strategic partners since 2004. We have annual summits, and our, the three pillars on which our relationship with the EU rest are fundamentally because we don't have any major issues in terms of political security topics, economic, popular, cultural. The total trade in goods and services between Europe, that is EU as a whole, and India in 2012 was about 100 billion. Unfortunately, trade has diminished partly because of the situation in Europe and also generally the economic climate around the world, growth has come down. So while merchandise trade has come down by about 5%, trade in services has gone up by about 10%. But since merchandise trade is more than trade in services, on the whole trade has come down. But let me give you a comparison because there's not so much Europe-India trade, it's also what is happening between India and the rest of the world. For instance, the share of Europe's trade 
with India as a percentage of India's overall trade, it has gone down from 18.7 to 13.2. 18.7 in 2006-7. This is a little before the financial sector meltdown. So in the last five, six years, it has. if we had 100 euros of trade with the world, Europe was 18.7 in 2006-2007, and today it is in 2012-2013, it is come down to 13.2. Similarly, North America come down from 11.2 to 9.2. Asia, as you can naturally expect, has gone up from 53% to 56.4%. Latin America, a small proportion of our trade, 29 to 5.1%. Africa is marginally up. It's basically oil with Nigeria, 143 to 16.5%. I'll stop with foreign direct investment as distinct from trade. UK is the largest provider of foreign direct investment. I say that even though it's number three as a country, it's Mauritius number one, Singapore number two, UK number three. The reason why Mauritius and Singapore are high up there is because of the double taxation avoidance agreements. And so while it appears as if the investment is coming from Mauritius, it's actually a company which has its origins in some other part of the world which has opened an office in Mauritius. Similarly, EU and UK gets a very significant amount of outbound Indian FDI, foreign direct investment. Our security-related dialogue encompasses, as you would naturally expect, counterterrorism, counterpiracy, and cyber security. This is increasingly very, very important for us, and I believe for the EU. So I will now wrap up because I've had to, at, uh, at a popular level, just to give you a sense, there's something to look forward to, India will co-host the next Europalia. It's a cultural extravaganza, which will obviously have many events in Brussels, but also in other European capitals, and it will go on from October 2013 to January 2014. Uh, so to sum up, we don't think... Uh, Europe is going anywhere but up. There are issues, but as I've recounted in the first few minutes of my intervention, Europe remains a very important economic bloc, and it has huge reservoirs of talent in every field of scientific and other areas of human endeavor. Thank you so much for your attention. Hi, Commissioner. Thanks very much indeed for that. I've just got one question for you. To what extent do you believe there is a direct relationship between economic strength and the potential for global leadership? The reason I ask is that, for example, I remember an American analyst saying to me a couple of years ago that the biggest challenge facing American foreign policy over the coming decade was its debt. Do you believe that Europe still confronting the economic problems that it is confronting, necessarily can't play a leadership role until it has sorted that out. You make it sound as if there's a problem that there are certain aspects of Europe's international profile which have suddenly come to a stop or have diminished. As I mentioned in my earlier remarks, that is not true. For instance, I just give you one. It's the largest provider of development assistance, despite its economic problems. 
I haven't gone into the numbers, but you can just look up any, student, any World Bank numbers, IMF numbers, you'll find that. Now, when it comes to the ability to project power, by definition, the economic strength of a country or of a region is very important. But Europe has decided that a lot of its security is going to be underwritten by the NATO. There is a huge overlap between the larger European economies and powers and NATO. So NATO is a transatlantic partnership, obviously includes the US. So if you have taken care of security, and to that extent the military needs, through a multilateral framework rather than trying and doing it on your own, so to that extent to expect that Europe will have a security footprint or an ability to project power militarily on its own, it's, you'll notice whether it was Libya and so on, it was more NATO, the no-fly zone and so on. Uh, but having said that, uh, I know for a fact that because it's all out there in, in, the, in, in, in the public domain that the U.S. carps about defense expenditure by individual European countries not being commensurate with their GDP as a percentage of GDP. I'll stop. Thank you very much. Mary Calder. Oh, I'm next. You're next. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually what I think is that Europe is in fact key to what happens over the next decade. Um, not because Europe's going to lead, as the title <laughs> suggests, but because the European Union is a new type of organisation that has the potential to offer a solution to global problems, climate change, financial volatility, global poverty, war and conflict. To say that it has the potential is not to say that it's going to, and if it fails, I think we're going to meet, there's going to be no other organisation that's capable of meeting those global problems. Why do I say this about the European Union? Um, well, I think the European Union has to be understood not as a global power like China or the United States, but as a new type of hybrid uh, polity that's relevant for a global era. Um, in fact, I think it's a kind of lo political laboratory, a model for the sort of po uh, political arrangements we need in a post-Westphalian pe period. Um, so it's not, um, it's a multilateral organization, but it's more than intergovernmental. Um, and I think perhaps one of the most important factors is that the EU was, unlike nation states, which were constructed on the basis of war, kings establishing territory through war, the EU, like the United Nations, was constructed in reaction to war. Um, it was intended to prevent a future war on European territory. Um, now, everyone agrees that actually the Euro crisis can only be solved through greater political integration, but what does political integration mean? Um, and I think what's really important is to understand that the European Union is not a European nation-state in the making. Uh, that protects the national interest of Europeans against others and that competes with China and the US. Um, rather, I think what we need to think about it is, is a model, if you like, a kind of model of global governance. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that its role 
is to protect democracy at local levels from the storms of globalization. At least that's what its potential role. Actually, it's doing exactly the opposite at the moment. Um, so I think it has a role in, if you like, civilizing and taming globalization. In a globalized world, you can't be a nation state on your own. And you need some kind of framework which the EU offers uh, in order to be able to continue to respond to the demands of your citizens. Um, so what, do I, what would that mean? Well, just to try to give you a few examples, I think what it would mean is that it's, it would be a new kind to go further than it has gone so far. It would need, rather than becoming a nation state which has income tax and so on, it would have new kinds of taxes which would tax global bads. So it would tax financial speculation, it would tax carbon emissions, it would have taxes on multinational companies, and it would spend that money on global goods. So uh, <coughs> resource-saving innovations, youth employment, um, alleviating global poverty, and also a contribution to international security. I don't think that EU security actually is just allied with NATO, as the ambassador, the High Commissioner, suggested. I think, on the contrary, the EU has a different type of security policy, of which the anti-piracy mission is an example, which is a contribution to global security. It, EU sees its security as being, um, as being achieved through a peaceful world rather than through defending its borders against enemies, which was the tradition of the nation-state. So what I'm trying to say is that I think the role of the EU would be to act as this new type of political organization. The issue is not so much democratizing the EU as protecting democracy at local levels, bringing back power to the citizens by protecting democracies from the problems that arise out of globalization while taking advantage of globalization. That's the kind of organization I think it has the potential to become and is already partly. Uh, and because it's that kind of organization, it's perhaps the, one of the few organizations in the world that could really do something about major global problems. But is this possible? Because in the current global crisis, in the current Euro crisis, I think there's a real danger that the EU will fall apart and if the EU falls apart, I think that's very bad, not just for Europe, but for the whole world, because it won't contribute to those problems. So what are the, how is this going to come about? I mean, on the one hand, I think there is an argument that there's got to be more political integration in order to save the euro. And I agree very much with Ulrich Beck, who says... Uh, monetary union without political union was not a mistake, as everyone said. It was deliberate. It was the only way to create an impetus for political union. Sooner or later, and this was the method through which the European Union was created, small economic steps leading to greater political uh, integration. Uh, and what monetary union did was to establish a vested interest in political union. 
I think the problem with that argument is that what used to be known as the permissive consensus, the idea that governments could just take these steps, no longer exists. Increasingly, politicians are the prisoners of very short-term national priorities. And so there's a real lack of the kind of political imagination that's needed to make that leap towards political integration. And that's what we need, not only to save the euro and save Europe, but also to save the world. Where else might there be a European constituency? Well, one argument is it's got to come, it's got to be bottom-up. It's got to come from civil society. It's got to come from activists. The problem about the new, younger generation is that they've forgotten the war. (laughs) They've forgotten the European Union as a kind of peace project. Many of them take Europe for granted. They feel themselves to be European. They study at different universities across Europe. They travel on Eurostar. But in terms of the European Union as an institution, partly as a consequence of the monetary union, they see it as a neoliberal bureaucracy, which, quite honestly, it is. (laughs) So how on earth does one get over that problem? Um, I think the only way to do it is if the European Union were to respond to some of the issues that the activists really care about. So if it did go for taxation of multinational companies, if it did do something on climate change, if it did something on internet freedom, all of these are things that are preoccupy people who are protesting, people who are out on the streets, people who are arguing on social media. And I think the only way I can see a sort of possible opening is if the EU responded to some of these big preoccupations, attacks on financial speculation, a Tobin tax, then you might generate the kind of pro-European popular feeling that is actually a necessary condition to escape this crisis. It's a very small window of opportunity, but it's my suggestion. Thank you very much. Can I just ask you to just tell us your thoughts on this notion of leadership? I mean, in a post-Cold War world, in a post-US hegemonic world, do you think the the, the notion of global leadership is still relevant? I mean, do you think somebody will emerge, must emerge, as a global leader or not? Well, I suppose what I was arguing is that Europe might lead by example. I mean, the way the world has changed over centuries has been that some local community has a brilliant idea like establishing a municipality or a university and then everybody copies it Mm -hmm. and it works and so people copy it so if the European Union as an institution worked then maybe people would want to replicate it in in different areas, I mean already the African Union and the um, and the, uh, the American, the OAS, have become much more substantial than they were in the mm. past. And I think these kind of new regional multilateral institutions, I think we're moving away from a world dominated by great powers, or at least we should move away because I think it's quite dangerous 
you know, we know that the last world war was the war to end wars. And, you know, the idea of a sort of great power-dominated world, particularly in a globalized era, is really problematic. We're moving towards a multilateral um, way of doing things. But as yet, multilateral institutions are extremely ineffective. So the EU has the potential to show what an effective multilateral institution could be, and that would then have knock-on effects elsewhere. Okay. Thanks. Um, Mark Leonard. Well, <clears throat> I should start by saying how, how much I agree with a lot of what Mary was talking about, about Europe as this radical experiment. I, I argued in my book in 2005, admittedly a long time ago, that Europe and the European Union was the most exciting uh, innovation in political power since the nation-state was invented 500 years ago. And for many of the reasons that that Mary talked about, I think it is a really radical idea that you can move beyond the balance of power between countries, beyond the idea that you don't interfere in each other's affairs and instead guarantee your security by interfering in each other's affairs, by binding yourself together in a, in a framework of rules. And I think in many ways, if you look at the, the world that we live in today... The big story of the last 50 years has been the creation of a European-inspired legal order in the shell of an American security order. The Westphalian order of Bretton Woods has given rise to a new idea of order, which has been particularly prevalent since the, the end of the Cold War, which gives much greater sway to individual rights, to institutionalized cooperation, to an idea of security based on legal interdependence and pooling sovereignty to deal with, with common problems. And I think that's really what's at risk at the moment. Mary talked about the dangers of that crumbling from the inside. And I'm going to talk a bit about um, how changes to the global environment are also putting pressure on that idea. Because the story which I told in my book, which I think is uh, a story which still has some way to go, was of Europe as this sort of pioneer that Mary was talking about that was spreading its way of doing things in four fundamental ways. Firstly just by enlarging itself, going from six to, well, we'll be 28 members of the European Union this year. Um, secondly, through the EU's impact on its neighbours. I talk in my book about a Eurosphere of 80 countries that are very dependent on the European Union for uh, market access, investment, and uh, technology, and a lot of them even use the euro. Um, thirdly, because Europe has pushed to create global institutions like the World Trade Organization, the International Criminal Court, it's Europe rather than uh, China or America that is behind the big innovations of global governments over the last few years. It's because of Europe that we don't actually live in a G0 world, but a world where there are rules to deal with, with big things that cut across borders like, like trade and that markets stay open. And fourthly, because, as Mary said, every other region in the world has been forced to integrate, particularly as uh, American hegemony disappears, the big drive in many parts of the world has been by countries to, 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 to team up, to, to uh, huddle together for strength in the face of great powers like China. But I think that um, <clears throat> that vision of, uh, of a European world is something which is very much being questioned in, in different parts of the world. The, um, the Western liberal order, which I talked about, has faced 
a lot of asymmetrical th- threats in the past, you know, from populist states like Belarus to uh, uh, terrorist organizations. And uh, in the international community, you've had spoilers uh, who've tried to, to stop the, the institutions from working. But I don't think that they really amounted to a conventional threat to, the, to that liberal, Western liberal order. But that is, has obviously changed completely, particularly since 2008. And the big change is the rise of what might be called the, the post-colonial superpowers, the rising powers of the 21st century, China, India, Brazil all have quite a lot in common. They're relatively new states which are forged by movements of national liberation, which has got a dramatic impact on their idea of sovereignty. For the West, globalisation has been destroying our sovereignty. It's been forcing us to think about sovereignty in different ways. But for these post-colonial superpowers, globalisation is actually what's given them a new sense of nationhood, uh, of their power in the world. And these former colonies are not about to give up on that sovereignty which they're exercising for the first time after decades of being subjugated, messed around, cut up and put back together in different ways by Western powers. And I think that that, um, the way that the exercise of power has both supported the, the Western sort of liberal order but also... Uh, uh, is now undermining it is, 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 is not fully understood in the past uh, it, and it's not uh, talked about in as sophisticated a way as, as it should be because I think that should give pause to our ideas about um, the ability of, of Europe to, uh, to, to uh, uh, both carry on existing but also to shape the world around it the academics Michael Barnett and Raymond Duval identified four types of power in international relations and I think that there has been a sort of Western liberal dominance across all four of them, which is now being challenged. Their first dimension is what they call coercive power. That's the most obvious one, the ability to bribe or coerce other countries to do what they want to do. And there, I don't need to talk about the, the, the big changes that have happened since the financial crisis, but it, it's obviously fundamentally changed uh, how coercive power is, is uh, distributed around the world. The second dimension is institutional power, which I think has been a core source of Western dominance. Until recently, Western capitals hoped that integrating rising powers like China into global institutions would encourage uh, capitals like Beijing to to identify their interests with the preservation of the international system that we had created and that served our interests so effectively. And the, the, the cry of, of lots of Western academics and policymakers is, you know, we have a choice, either we invite these rising powers into the existing systems um, or they will overthrow them and develop an alternative order. But actually seen from Beijing where I spent quite a lot of time, the choice was never about joining the existing institutions or overthrowing them. From a Chinese perspective, they've always sought to take full advantage of of the economic advantages of joining the existing institutions. while secondly trying to change those institutions to protect their own room for manoeuvre and making sure it doesn't, they don't interfere any more than they have to in their sovereignty. And thirdly, um, they created their own institutions around them, minilateral institutions, whether it's the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation or the BRICS or regional uh, bodies in every single part of the world. And rather than being transformed or socialised by the global institutions, I think 
we can see in many of these institutions that they've been uh, fundamentally changed by China's multilateral diplomacy. One tiny illustration uh, is what's happened to the United Nations. That used to be seen as a multiplier of, of Western, in particular European power. And that's because, you know, if you go back to the end of the, the last century, in, in 1999, Europe won 78% of the votes on human rights issues. At that time, China only won 43%. But if you fast forward 10 years uh, to just after the financial crisis in 2009, the EU won 52% of the votes and China won 82%. So you can see the extent to which uh, the institutional balance of power is changing. The third dimension is, is structural power in the global economy. So we saw how the old colonizer-colonized relationship morphed over time into a new one based on a new structural relationship between the globalizers, us in the West, and the globalized. But that obviously has changed rather fundamentally. The boot is very much on the other foot when China is, is, is Washington's banker and is using the promise of waves of investment into different parts of the world to change their political calculuses uh, calculi, calculi, something. Anyway, the fourth kind of power is, is productive power, which is maybe the most fundamental one, which is the ability to shape, to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's important. And for many years, we took on our own shoulders the, 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 the mantle of, of deciding how to judge what responsible behaviour was uh, uh, and, and uh, to decide what, uh, to, to, to pass judgment on everyone around the world. But obviously that's not as popular as it, as it once was. In China, intellectuals for 20 years have been calling for a second liberation of thought. If you look at the Arab Spring, you saw countries that were democratizing, but if you look at the politics which has emerged, it's not about joining the West and assuming Western practices. It's a second wave of decolonization, throwing off Western rules and Western norms, um, uh, and uh, it's about self-actualization. Um, so I think across all the different dimensions of power, there is a fundamental shift taking place, and that has profound implications for Europe's ideas of world order. And I think that the thinking about how Europe should adapt itself is at its very, very earliest uh, stages. And I was going to use one example, which was this transatlantic trade and investment partnership, which the ambassador, which the High Commissioner was talking about, as an example maybe of how Europe is is um, is starting to rethink itself, because I think that has four very kind of interesting features. First, it's about strengthening the West's coercive power and its ability to, to set the rules. Secondly, it's an exit from these global institutions that, that, um, that Europe used to invest so much power in. It's realised that it can't control the World Trade Organisation anymore, so it's creating its own institutions as a Western club. Thirdly, it's an attempt to, to rebalance structural power in the global economy. And fourthly, um, when it comes to the idea of productive power, in a way, it's moving away from the universalism of, of European ideals and admitting that, we're, that we'd like to live with our own particularities in our own kind of Western club with, with people a bit like us. So that could maybe be the fundamental, a fundamental change in the way that Europeans are thinking about how to maintain the things which make Europe special in a world which is much less Western than that which gave birth to the European project at the beginning. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Before I ask for questions from the floor, just wearing your China analyst hat, 
Do you read into that quote from the People's Daily that I just read out, the condescending attitude of some Europeans and the failure to recognise the change of times, do you read into that an implied complaint that Europe is still trying to act as a leader and hasn't yet understood that it shouldn't anymore? Uh, yeah, I think that's um, it is. absolutely okay. the way it is. And I, I think that it's maybe the biggest failure of, of European thinking about foreign policy. We still talk endlessly about our soft power, which is based on the notion that everyone wants to be us and wants to be like us. And actually... <laughs> That editorial, like anything you hear if you go anywhere outside of Europe, uh, it's telling you that the rest of the world doesn't want to be like us. They want to be themselves. They'll use our technology. They'll have, enjoy doing trade with us and other sorts of things. But uh, imitating us uh, is not uh, the ultimate aspiration of most of the people in most countries of the world. Okay, so the question then, rather than can Europe lead in a post-Western world, perhaps could be should Europe <laughs> try to lead? And the answer to that would be, no, come. Well, I think that we should try and shape a world which, uh, where we can prosper, where our values and our aspirations can be realised. And I think we have a lot to contribute to, to that world. I think, as Mary was saying, the beauty of the European Union is it's, it's not about trying to be a kind of massive superpower. It's about making the world safe for small states that, that want to do things. And in order to do that, I think, we, you know, it is going to be using coercive and other kinds of power to, because not everyone agrees with our worldview. I think it's legitimate for us to, to try and uh, advance our views, but it's going to be more and more difficult. Can it I say to... something in criticism? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's something called communicative power, first of all. And I don't think things like human rights are particularly European. And I really object, you know, it means that every Chinese dissident who's in prison is somehow not Chinese. Um, what I think is, and I don't think it's true that the, um, the Arab Spring was about wanting to be more like themselves. I think it really was about democracy and human rights. It's true that the Islamists have been very powerful as a result of it. But nevertheless, there are strong groups that support that. And in a globalized world with internet, you know, the kinds of pressures that are going to develop on, uh, on different powers um, will, you know, they may not succeed, but if they don't succeed, they're gonna be huge problems. I mean, just to give you one example, I have a student doing a PhD on Chinese companies. What he finds is that in the end, Chinese companies behave very similar to Western companies because they're under pressure from NGOs and other groups to behave in different ways. And actually, from a profitable point of view, they need to act more like Western companies. Okay. Let's open it up, otherwise we're going to sit here having a lovely chat among ourselves as if there's nobody else in the room. Okay, gentleman yeah. there and then a gentleman at the back. Here first. Uh, wait, but there's a microphone just coming to you. Oh, oh how wonderful. Sing a song. I just wanted to ask about the... Uh, there is one European state which is not post-colonial, but it's still during colonial, which you've not discussed, which is the Russian Federation. What is the relationship in the future between Western Europe and Central Europe, the European Union, and this... Uh, country which is the largest landmass on the planet. Thank you. A uh, gentleman up towards the back there, if we could get the microphone up there. 
I'll, I'll take sort of groups of three, I think, and then... Yeah. Um, you talk about China. Like, um, for years I've been reading that China was not um, a democracy and, and we didn't deal with communist regimes. So why are we dealing with China? Because uh, what has really happened is a lot of factories have closed in Europe and America and they've moved to China so we're, we're, and then they're importing into Europe and America. So it's put a lot of people out, jo out of jobs. What Europeans want really, I think, is a job and a job that pays. So why are we dealing with China on such a mass scale? Why couldn't they uh, send, why couldn't they maybe shift the manufacturing from Western Europe to Eastern Europe? when the 10 new countries came in in 2004, and that would give a lot of East Europeans jobs, where there's mass migration from Eastern Europe into West Europe. And, um, and India, can I just say, um, I admire your country, sir, but you have a lot of child labor in your country. So, I mean, that's not very good. Thank okay, you. Thank you very much indeed. And down here at the very front. Thank you. My name is John Palmer. Robin, I want to raise uh, two issues briefly with the panel and seek their reaction. I very much agreed with Mary's approach. On sovereignty sharing, the distinctive feature about the governance of the European Union, um, I, I wonder whether we're not seeing the beginnings of this in other parts of the world with the emergence. Brazil has been mentioned. The Mercosur community, the broader uh, South American Union, is indeed uh, discussing whether they should move beyond the stage of intergovernmental cooperation to something more serious. In ASEAN, faced with China, there is a very active debate whether they should move to more politically based collective decisions than merely uh, a common uh, trade area. And I wonder whether the High Commissioner might even imagine that if all goes well, as we all hope in relations between India and Pakistan in future, there might not be scope for a South Asian community that had the aspiration to take collective uh, shared responsibility for common problems. But my, uh, my question to the other two members of the panel is this. Um, if uh, democratic governance and shared sovereignty are the hallmarks of the European Union's approach and innovation, and much does hang on the overcoming the crisis, isn't the biggest lacuna the failure to apply that to Europe's neighbours in the East and South, not in terms of full membership of a union, which is uh, impossible to imagine at the moment, but that the principle of shared collective responsibility and not merely bilateral relationships between the powerful and the uh, peripheral uh, should become uh, the hallmark of its future relations both with the non-EU East and uh, its North African Mediterranean neighbours. Okay, thanks for those. Um, let's take them in reverse order. High Commissioner, why did you deal with the idea of shared sovereignty, first of all? Because you said in your remarks that you found it slightly puzzling, this notion of shared sovereignty. Uh, John points you to Mercosur and ASEAN and says, what about a South Asian pooling of sovereignty one day? Your thoughts? Uh, these are two separate concepts. Uh, pooling of resources. We have the SARC for South Asian countries, S-A-A-R-C, Regional, RC stands for regional uh, cooperation. I did not say that we don't understand it. It uh, might make sense for Europe, but in our discussion sometimes with Europe, 
when we are told about how it may even apply to India, there is a certain amount of reservation about that, precisely because of the fact that we are a new nation and we're still trying to figure out exactly in what ways we can establish our sovereignty and establish ourselves as a nation state. As the gentleman up there said, it's not just child labor, we have violence against women, we have people in abject poverty, there's a lot of work to be done in development. So it is unlikely that we can pass on any of those giant uh, uh, kind of issues for us to anyone else whether it is the concept of shared sovereignty or whether it is any other kind of multilateral framework. Multilateral frameworks will help and assist, but the basic challenge has to be faced domestically. Mary, do you want to take on John's other point about um, democratic principles to the east and south of the EU? And the I mean, I felt it was very, very disappointing <laughs> when 2011 happened that the EU didn't express more solidarity and also there wasn't more popular solidarity with what was going on in the Middle East. And I still feel it's very, very disappointing that we don't seem to care nearly so much about Syria as we cared about Bosnia. We as people rather than we as governments. Both. 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 Actually, you know, I don't in fact think it's because the Middle East is non-European and that we cared about I think it has much more to do with the experience of the last ten years the exhaustion with the war on terror, that's why nobody wants to intervene in Syria or do anything. I'm not necessarily calling for intervention, but an, a sense of solidarity with the Syrian people. Um, so I think it has much more to do with that, but I still think it's extremely disappointing, and not only disappointing, quite dangerous. I mean, if you see what is happening in Syria the risk of it spreading to Lebanon and other parts of the Middle East. I think this is terribly... We're in a very, very dangerous uh, situation at the moment. And actually, we need an EU which is more politically effective, um, or we need something. Because it's in that context, isn't it, that people start talking about the failure of leadership and the consequences of failure of leadership. Mm. And people look to Syria and they say, no one is taking a lead. The US plainly has no wish to... The EU is extremely reluctant to, with the possible exception of the UK and France. China certainly doesn't want to. I mean, do we see there the human suffering which sometimes results from the absence of global leadership? I, I, I think we do. Yeah, okay. I think we do. I mean, the only other thing I wanted to say, and maybe it's not exactly relevant to this question, is that I do think, you know, we need to understand the nature of this current crisis, and I think it's more than a financial crisis. It's a deep structural crisis that has to do with the nature of production and the end of an era of mass production and intensive use of oil, and we can only get out of it, both economically and environmentally, if we develop a new model of green development. And that's the other area that I think EU could potentially take a lead, certainly Germany, um, which really has to happen. The Copenhagen summit wasn't a great uh, example of no. how that might happen, was it? I, I was very struck, as I was there reporting it, how the EU was, was just invisible yes, as a player. I, I agree, and it had played a big role earlier. Yeah, exactly. But now there's a real problem at European level, which I think has to do with the ways in which national politicians are blocked, actually. Mark, do you want to take on Russia and China? Um, point about the Russian Federation and point about 
you know, China and jobs of the EU. Can I also link them yeah, to John's question? Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I think that um, why are we dealing with China? Because China, one-fifth of the world lives in China, um, and they're growing at 10% a year. Um, and we, if we want to deal with any global problems, we're going to have to find a way of working with China, whether it's climate change, whether it's rebuilding the global economy, whether it's doing anything. So you can't just pretend that China doesn't exist. The question is, is on what basis should we work with, with China? Um, how should we uh, promote our interests? And I think there... Um, and this links up a bit with the Russian question and with John's question. I think, in a way, Europeans have been a bit naive about how the world works because we look at out at our own continent. You know, after 1989, we did think that um, uh, the world, that, that, hist- that, that, that we got to the end of history, that things were moving our way, that everyone was going to become like us and that the world was cheering us on. And we were conned into doing that because our neighbourhood transformed so dramatically. I read this fascinating uh, article in Foreign Affairs from 1992 by James Baker about Asian security. He said, we fix Europe now. Uh, it's time to think about Asian security. And he described all of the kind of territorial and the maritime issues and the other sorts of things in 1992. And it's amazing, looking back at it now, it's almost a perfect contemporaneous description of, of the, the kind of tinderbox of, of, uh, of Asia. If you think about Europe back in 1992, it's completely unrecognisable. The borders have changed, there are new countries, there's a new currency, there's a single market that was just coming into existence back in 1992. And we have transformed our world. Europe has changed more in the last 20 years than any other part in the world, and probably any part in the world in history, except maybe Africa in the kind of waves of decolonisation in the 1960s. So it's not that surprising that we missed what was going on outside of the rest of the world, which hasn't become like us, which doesn't particularly want to become like us, which finds us frankly baffling, as the High Commissioner was saying, in terms of some of the the ways that we organise ourselves. And therefore, when we think that we live in this kind of uh, Kantian world of peaceful republics that that pull sovereignty and work together, we expect China and Russia and Syria and other countries... (laughs) to be behaving in the same way that we, we are. And they're, they're not. <laughs> they're sovereign states that behave in a way that sovereign states behaved uh, you know, before this Kantian world came into existence. And the language that they understand is a language of power. And therefore, if we want to, to uh, <coughs> organise ourselves well when we're dealing with the Chinese and the Russians and the Syrians and others, we basically need to behave... Uh, in a, in a different way to when we're engaging with each other. And that means using diplomacy, using our kind of assets in a more intelligent way. So with the Chinese, for example, it means not doing what we've just been doing on solar panels recently, where we, we split into a group of 17 and a group of 10, and we kind of undermine our own negotiating position. But I think on the neighbourhood, and maybe can just make that point briefly, that we have... We were so incredibly successful in the 1990s uh, in our, the way that we transformed our neighbourhood that we assume that that's the, the, the natural way of engaging with other countries, that they can become members of the European Union. In exchange for that, they'll absorb 80,000 pages of laws and transform themselves, and that that's the kind of deal. That, that's, that's an exception in history. We had a historic 
obligation to our neighbours to, to bring them into the European club. But we've reached the end of the process. You know, Croatia might come in, it's just possible that Serbia and, and maybe a few other countries will get in. And in fact, the EU's already so wide that it's going to have to change anyway and you'll get different tiers and, and it could, you could see things happening to other, to, to other parts of the world. But our big failure with Syria is basically a failure of, of, of diplomacy. It's, it's not doing old-fashioned things. It was, we need to work with Iran, with, with Russia. We need to find a way of stopping all the external powers who are piling um, weapons and, uh, and money and other things into, uh, into Syria. And okay, turning talk, into talk, talk a moment about Russia yeah. then, Mark, because there was a question about Russia. We, we often talk about China's yeah. new global leadership ambitions. We talk much less about Russia's. Yeah. Well, Old. Old ambitions, maybe, or rekindled ambitions. I, mean, I think we're doing exactly the right thing on Russia. We, in the, in, uh, you know, in the 90s, we thought we were going to transform Russia, that Russia was like a giant Poland, mm. that we could engage it and we could turn it into basically a, pro- a member of the European Union. And then we sort of realised that actually Russia didn't particularly want that. They're a bit too big to, to, to do that to. They are, as you say, a kind of empire on our borders uh, that see themselves as the centre of the universe rather than Brussels as the centre of the universe. Um, and we had a really nasty awakening because we thought interdependence was a really good way of getting countries to get on with us. So we built up a very strong interdependent relationship with the Russians. And then the Russians started using that to blackmail us, using energy as a weapon against European countries, trying to bully different people, closing their market. 14 member states in the European Union in 2007 had bilateral uh, uh, problems with the Russians who were bullying them in different ways. And since 2007, what we've done is what is exactly what we should do. We've tried to uh, both become more united, so we don't, we, we've shown solidarity towards each other. We've realised we're not going to change Russia, but we can change ourselves. And we've used the kind of power that you get from an internal market to stop Gazprom being uh, 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 a political actor that could divide and rule Europeans uh, by building electricity connections amongst ourselves, changing our energy mix, reducing our, our, our kind of dependence on, on Russian gas. We've had a more common voice with the Russians um, uh, when we engage with them internationally. We've tried to build trust within the European Union. And as a result, I mean, we've been helped by the collapse in global commodities prices in 2008, which has meant that the Russians are much less assertive than they were before 2008. But we now have a kind of healthy relationship with Russia. I, I, want, to, I, I want to disagree. Okay. <laughs> I think it's, of course it's true that Russia, China, India remain modernist states with an old-fashioned, what I would call an old-fashioned Westphalian concept of sovereignty. But you have to be very big to do that. You have to be a big state to be able to do that in the interconnected world. And actually what we're seeing is... Brazil is not like that. You're seeing a trend towards newly democratizing states who express many of the same multilateralist, postmodernist aspirations as Europe. So I don't think it's just they're like that because they have these values and will never change. Uh, on Russia, while I agree that with many of the things that you say, the idea that Russia rejected our offers of interdependence seems to me completely crazy. Actually, what we did was two really big mistakes. One was 
pursuing a neoliberal strategy in relation to Central Europe and Russia, which meant a few people got tremendously rich and there were great extremes of poverty. And not that, I mean, maybe they would have done it anyway, but the whole shock therapy was really extreme. Secondly, we refused to let Russia join NATO and made it clear that we were still paying great power politics. And finally, on Syria, the only old-fashioned diplomacy which would have worked would have been to say, yeah, we're with you, Russia and Iran. We think dictatorships are stable. Russia and Iran are really worried about the same thing happening to themselves, and that's why they're so resistant to any negotiations on Syria. Right. I would like to take <laughs> some questions from women now, please. I had three men in the first round. Could I have three women, please, in the second? There is one there. Come on. Yeah, I won there. Okay, we'll get the third in it. Yes. Um, I have a question for Mark and Mary. Uh, I would like to know whether you've ignored the fact that the nation state is alive in Western Europe. It's actually going through a revival, and we just need to switch on the television to see that. And also that there is a rise of fascism in countries like Greece. So both of these processes are actually challenging for Europe uh, in the sense of prospectively leading the world. So we're discussing here the relationship between Europe, Russia, India, China, but we're ignoring what is happening in the European Union. Do you seriously think that this should be ignored, or is it just an omission in your presentation? Thanks. Thank you very much. There was one, yes. Um, Mark touched on this point briefly, but I just wanted to get the um, High Commissioner's view on it as well. Do you think the problem with European leadership is that it doesn't differentiate enough the way it interacts internally and the way it presents itself to the rest of the world and that creates problems because the rest of the world can see how kind of the divisions within the EU and is that the problem of European leadership? Thank you. One more female voice please down here. Yeah. Hi Catherine Smith. We are in a post-industrial world and the High Commissioner has pointed out that Europe has an immense reservoir of technology and skills and education. How is it that we are failing to build a future wealth base, given that we have those reserves? Because only if we do apply creativity to getting a new kind of wealth which is actually tradable, in other words, that people will actually pay for as opposed to expecting to get for nothing, will we be able to continue having the leadership we've had for the last couple of hundred years? So why are we failing to build on our legacy? Thank you very much. All right, well, High Commissioner, take away with that one, first of all. Yes, I think uh, the, the, the last two questions... Uh, May I suggest that, you know, we've been talking about Europe for a very long time, but we don't look at some basic numbers. That's my feeling even when I was in Brussels. Europe is aging. But uh, you resist uh, raising of the retirement age. People are living longer. There, are, there is a sense sometimes we get, those of us in the Westphalian mode, even today, uh, that uh, perhaps there is... Uh, necessity to think hard about where Europe is and where the world was. 
another thing which has struck me within Europe is, despite their being excellent, and I completely agree, academic institutions and high levels of technology, at a more general level, a basic awareness of world history and where Asia was 200 years ago seems to be lacking. I'll just give you one statistic. In 1815, 45% of global GDP was just China and India. Then came Industrial Revolution, then everything changed because you don't need so many people. It's not uh, rocket science. We had lots of people, so therefore we had more GDP. But now we have the people and the machines. So the pendulum will swing. Uh, the, the, so sometimes you get a sense that Europe talks a lot within itself. So one of the solutions is to also talk to others and also find out from them where they were 100 years ago. We have talked about Syria, for instance, but we seem to forget about what's happened in Iraq. It's not been mentioned. Depending upon whose estimate you take, at least 500,000 people killed in Iraq. Saddam Hussein, terrible person. Is the solution better than the problem? Where is Afghanistan? We've had a war in Afghanistan, at least for the last 10, which is equal to two world wars. We talk about Europe's experience of the Second World War and its determination after that that never again will we have such a war. But we've had this war for 10, 11 years. Before that, 20 years of disturbances in Afghanistan. Is Europe sufficiently where? What about Libya? Is the Libyan problem over? Is armed intervention to change regimes necessarily the best way to proceed? Where is Europe on these issues? I know individual countries have taken differing views on some of this. Where exactly is Europe on some of these burning issues? So the answer to your question and to your question is that perhaps there is a little more introspection required. And at that same time, a somewhat more in-depth discussion, rather than feeling that Europe is post-Westphalian, post-modern, has reached a stage where uh, armed intervention of any kind is outlawed within Europe, but it's okay elsewhere, as long as it is sufficiently far, and hopefully the repercussions don't reach Europe. I'm not suggesting that that's what people think, but when you look at Europe from outside, sometimes some countries might get that feeling that is there sufficient introspection as to where Europe was, what were the reasons why Europe rose, while it has immense reservoirs, a lot of it was based on exploitation of other countries elsewhere. So they have in their collective memory and individual memory where Europe was, whether it was with regard to Congo or India or elsewhere. Why are there Indians in Fiji or, or in uh, the Caribbean and elsewhere in the Commonwealth? Because they were taken as slave labor to these countries to cultivate sugarcane. What, what is Europe's attitude to some of these issues where they are, some of them are historical uh, so you don't really need to do anything about it but it's somewhat simplistic. That's the sense sometimes I get. I'll stop there. Um, fascism. <laughs> Mary, do you want to talk about the yeah, need to... I mean, to... I want to talk about two things. Mm. First of all, I think the European Union was actually created both in reaction to war and in reaction to the colonial past, actually. And Europe was the site both of imperialism and war for many centuries, and I agree with the ambassador. But I think the whole point of the European Union was to turn a page on that. Yes, I agree. It was a tragedy that the European Union 
did not oppose Iraq, which it would have done had it not been for Tony Blair, our own British Prime Minister. So, um, you know, so I agree with you on Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think this is, all of this has pulled European Union downwards. Yes, of course the nation-state is reviving in the context of the financial crisis. Yes, of course fascism is rising, but what I am terrified of is precisely that. I think if European Union cannot get its act together, the nation-state will revive. I think Greece could well be a model for the rest of Europe, and that link to what's happening in the Middle East is, to me, a terrifying prospect. And that's why it's so incredibly urgent to start thinking in different ways. And undoubtedly, national politicians are to blame because they've used, they've blamed the European Union. Everything that was bad was due to the European Union and everything good was due to them. And um, they've been so preoccupied with winning the next election that they don't think about the longer-term future. They don't take a responsible position. And that's the sort of real problem that we face that I was trying to draw attention to. Mark, you have two minutes to wind us up. Um, I mean, I'll well, wind us down. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, there, as I said earlier, I do think there is a real danger of the European uh, Union collapsing <laughs> as a result of some of the forces for disintegration which have been unleashed since the beginning of the financial crisis, both between the Eurozone and the non-Eurozone, between debtors and creditors, but above all between because of a, a complete breakdown in the social contract between Europe's citizens and its institutions. For most of the period where the EU's been integrated, that, that it was not that difficult to make the case for Europe. You know, for, for, for if a friend of mine who does market research splits the world into three groups of people, the settlers who want a quiet life and don't want to be bothered by the world, the prospectors who want to make money who are kind of ambitious and materialistic, and the pioneers who want to live in a kind of, uh, in a, who want excitement. And each of those groups had a, a European narrative which made them feel proud to be part of Europe. The settlers had this, talk, the, the peace project the uh, pioneers had the single market and the prospects of growth. Sorry, the, the prospectors did. And the pioneers saw Europe as this modern cosmopolitan project. And today, none of those things are true. The settlers see Europe as something which has broken down their national borders, that's flooding them with, with migrants, that's changing the nature of their communities, that's taking their jobs away, that's driving their, their salaries down. The prospectors see Europe as a, a bas an economic basket case which is, uh, which is going to bring them down. And for the pioneers, Europe is incredibly parochial. They want to go to India or China or, uh, you know, the, 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 they have much wider horizons. And unless we can somehow reinvent uh, a European project which says something to all of those groups, I fear that the EU will struggle to survive. I think there are lots of really amazing things about the European Union, but we need to tell a different story about a world where Europe uh, is still going to be an important part of the world, but it's not going to be our world anymore. It is a post-Western world that we're living in. I think that's the, the premise for this whole debate and discussion. Fantastic. Thank you, Mark, very much. Um, 
That, I think, will bring us to the end of the discussion. I'm not sure we've answered the question, but at the very least, we have had a very interesting discussion about why it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> um, my very grateful thanks to all three of our panellists. My thanks to you. I hope you have found it as interesting as I have. Thank you very much. For this.